Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for Security Now is provided by AOL Radio at AOL.com slash podcasting. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 182 for February 5th, 2009. Your questions, Steve's answers, number 59. Security Now is brought to you by Audible.com. For your free audiobook and a whole lot more, visit audiblepodcasts.com slash security now. And by Go to My PC. Wherever you go, access your PC and all of your files, programs, and email remotely with GoToMyPC. For a free trial of this award-winning service, visit GoToMyPC.com slash security now. It's time for security now. Time for us to talk about protecting yourself online and off, protecting your privacy, protecting your special precious assets and there's no one who knows more about this subject than steve gibson from hey PLC. well i don't know that i would put it that way but i'm the only one you can get in front of a microphone <laughs> that can actually speak <laughs> no that's true i mean there are security researchers there are wonderful oh, security research out, out there i i worship them They're, i should finish the sentence you know more about it and you're uh, uh, and you're better able to explain it than anybody I enjoy else. communicating yeah. what i have figured out yeah. and, and learned that's that's definitely the case i did an interview last night uh with uh, mark germain who's been in uh, la radio for years and uh, he said, well, you know, I listen to Steve, but I, I don't understand. It goes right over my head. And I said, Steve is uh, not for everyone. I'm not saying this is a show that everybody should listen to, although you, everybody should learn from it. But it, this is for people who really want to know the inner workings of this. But you're very clear and very explicit about how it all works. Well, I, I've, I in we, we have a Q&A episode this week, and I just... I love reading the feedback from our listeners. And once again, I ran across somebody who had written in the last two weeks because I normally dump the mailbag every two weeks. And there are 384 submissions um, from the last time I dumped wow. it two weeks ago. And I mean, I just, and I'm, I'm so heartbroken that I just, I can't, I can't respond to them all. I just, just, there isn't time. I mean, if I did nothing else, then I could, but, but then nothing else would happen. So, um, but once again, one uh, I ran across one uh, person who had written that the, the podcast had inspired them about computers to go back to, to get their degree. They're doing some post degree work. And I mean, because of the podcast, which is, you know, way cool. I wow. really like. Wow. Uh, that's <clears throat> spectacular. Yeah. So, well, uh, and that shows there people really want to know this stuff. And uh, and if you and this I guess that's what I would say is this is a show. If you really want to know this stuff, this is where you're going to hear it. Well, and you know, the, the, I know that we talk about this all the time, but life is more and more on the internet and more and more yes. of our life is on the internet. And one of the other things that I keep running across as I'm reading feedback from people is they, they comment that they're so much more aware now after listening to the podcast of the issues. I mean, you know, you, and certainly it, it certainly raises some concern but on the other hand, you you can't be concerned about what you don't know. So in knowing what's going on, it's natural to get more concerned. But I would argue, well, you, people should be, I mean, to some degree, not all freaked out and paranoid. But I mean, you know, take reasonable steps, given that you know what what the dangers are. 
Yeah, and that's one thing Mark said is that I don't do everything Steve recommends. I just find it overwhelming. And I and I and I said, you know, I don't either. But it's good to know. It's good to know. Right. You know, in other words, instead of just wandering, make an intelligent choice. Yes, exactly. The more you know, the more you can make that choice. So yep. that's that's really the value of this. Yeah, we were talking before we began recording a, a little bit about um, some of the issues that we're going to discuss today. And I mentioned that we've got a couple real more new bonehead security uh, moves on PayPal's part. And I was saying, you know, they, they're they so dominant and so important that they, they really ought to hire someone who knows security to, like, fix this stuff. Because it's just the, the two things we're going to wrap up the, the Q&A with at the end of the show are just, they may, it's like, oh, my God, you're kidding um, and I was mentioning to you that I've been using PayPal a lot recently because I've been doing some some uh, antique collecting um, of of old machines. Um, you started this again because you held up that damn plane <laughs> of core memory, and I started. I gotta get some of that. And that, that of course led me back to the PDP eight and the whole PDP eight you know uh, construction project. But then I then I as I be- sort of remembered. Those machines, I thought, well, now, what about an 11? And and what about a Vax? Oh, no. And so, and I I, I have been reading a couple uh, books about the history of Digital Equipment Corporation and remembering that, you know, the, the PDP-11 is one that I never had the chance to program. I sort of just stepped over that into the microcomputers, you know, the 8008, the 8086, and the, the 8088, and that never got into the Vax, but... But Deck deliberately designed the instruction sets of the VAX and well of the PDP eleven and then the VAX, which was sort of an expansion of the eleven's instruction set, to be pleasant to program in assembly language. I mean, they designed them for me, um, and 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 a consequence of that was that they would be efficient for compilers to produce code for. But I thought, okay, I, I got to. I got to get me some of these before they all disappear because they are, I mean, they are beginning to disappear. These machines are unfortunately, you know, even collectors who end up with a collection that they're proud of, you know, they die and their wives don't know what to do with them or their family doesn't know what to do. I mean, they end up just being scrapped one way or the other. So I thought, okay, I'm going to, I got to get busy now, protect this equipment because I figure in about 30 years, you know, when I'm 80 something, That'll be about the time that I want to sit down and, and do some PDP-11 programming and some VAX programming. So anyway, uh, I've been using PayPal a lot, and uh, you know I've got my little football with me all the time, and I'm, I'm happy with it. But I'm less happy with it now than I was yesterday before I read the two things that we're going to wrap up this oh, Q&A with. Oh, oh. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, so just off the top of your head, you've got – you said how many? Two PDP-8s? No, actually, um, I ended up the the gal that I um, connected up with tossed in a couple others in unknown condition, and okay. they're not nearly as nice as the ones I had, but they're workable. Um, so I, at some point, I will I need to do some restoration because they're I couldn't you couldn't plug them in and use them right now. Right. And you and, um, and you bought three kits. So and I be- bought three three of the really neat PDP eight. Uh, the um, spare time gizmos. So you get like, yeah. f- you know, f- five or more, five plus PDP-8s. 
Yeah. Well, on I, the other hand, I mean, you know, consider how many PCs I have. Yeah, I mean, that's true. I, well, no, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not knocking you. I'm trying to get an inventory here. Just okay. <laughs> and then, and then I then then there I was. I just a, bought two laptops. Believe me, I'm not the guy to knock you. Okay. Yeah. And I, I, I and a, then a, I also got sight unseen a pair of PDP 11s. Now, how big are uh, those? Well, they're they're. They're well. They come in a whole range of sizes. I mean, and in fact, the eleven was designed deliberately to be a scalable computer. Right. And one of the things that I've really enjoyed about reading the history of this is is that um, uh, I can't think of his name. Not Gordon Moore. That's Intel. Oh, 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 oh Gordon Bell. Yeah, Gordon Bell. Yeah, exactly. Deck, Gordon yeah. Bell, who was you know the original deck guy yeah. um he really understood that that about about Moore's law and and that in their terms Moore's law means that about every um I don't remember now what the numbers were exactly but it was like every 18 every, months I think it doubles every, every yeah. year and a half yeah. you needed two more bits of addressing from their standpoint uh, interesting and so they they literally looked at it in terms of you know, as computers grow, the one thing they keep outgrowing is memory. You know, I mean, Bill Gates, we all know, famously said that there would you would never need more than 640K in a PC. Um, 640K. K. K. Not, not, not even a K. May. So, um, and that was when the Apple II had 64K. Right. And so this was, oh, 10 times that much. <laughs> you could never fill that up with anything. So, you know, so anyway, the, it's been an interesting adventure. The, the PDP-11 was, it also outgrew itself, but it, it grew for, you know, many orders of magnitude and lasted for a long time and was, and was a really popular machine. So sight unseen, I, I, I bought two from this same gal and one of them has all of its boards, but it's pretty banged up. I mean, it's just sad to see a, a classic machine just, you know, brutalized. Uh. The other one is in better shape, but is empty, no boards. So I figure between the two, I've got, I got a nice chassis and then the other one's got the boards. Um, but again, they need, it needs to be like completely taken down to its constituent parts, everything cleaned, Probably I would have the cases repainted and then, you know, I would like to restore them to like museum grade mint condition. I think that'd just be really fun. So very cool. So sort of like somebody who like works on old cars, that kind of thing. You're going to get any vaccin? I have some. You got vaxes? I have vaxin. They, the, the, the vax went from being a really monster machine. It also lived a long time and, and got well into the LSI microcomputer uh, era. So there are micro vaxes, which are cute little wow. one inch high things. There's even called uh, there's a there's a vax for a vax station 4000 VLC that stands for very low cost. And they literally go for a hundred dollars. Wow. On eBay. Um, there is there the, the they run um, a strong flavor of Unix. So you can run Unix on it. And a lot of people do. But also VMS was the operating system right. DEC right. created. Special, I mean, they, they wrote VMS for the VAX, um, and it's off, often called VAX VMS. And then, of course, you know, DEC got purchased by Compaq. that got purchased by HP. So now HP has it, and it's called OpenVMS. And there's a hobbyist license for free. You can sign up for and get like everything, the whole the VMS and all what they call their layered 
products, which are like all the languages that are available and everything is. And there's a really nice macro language, which is the macro assembler. So anyway, I've sort of been pulling all that together in the background. You're going to stick uh, with minis this, or you're going to go to, uh, you're not going to add Vic 20s and Commodore 64s. and. Oh, I have all those already. Uh, I've got the whole Atari line. What? The, the Apple line. I mean, all of that stuff I had because I was using them wow. and I just, I never threw them away. I, Where do you I kept... keep them? Do you have like a storage locker? I mean, how do you keep all this stuff? Yeah, they're all offsite in a, in a good, well-secured location. So. Boy, it'd be really cool to, uh, I think we need to set up the Steve Gibson computer. Music. <laughs> well, and to put this in perspective too, there are many other collectors. There oh, are yeah. collectors where you think, my God, this guy must have his own warehouse right. i mean where where they like got multiples of every pdp machine ever created i mean just phenomenal collections and you know the question is what's going to happen to that collection when when they lose interest or you know when they need money because the economy is in bad shape or or whatever so you know it's like okay i i can't count on other people's collections to stay around and i've also been scraping the net for all of the software and documentation so that I'm getting my own copy because you run across lots of broken links, links of people's sites who used to be, who used to have all this documented and aggregated that are, they're just gone. Right. So it's, okay. Now I got to get it before it goes away any further. So there's a, there's of course a computer. In fact, we've been thinking about doing a show and if we do this, we'll get you to come up at the computer history museum in San Jose, which is a great oh. place. In fact, it was Gordon Bell's wife, Gwen Bell, who founded that uh, with Gordon's help. Some well, you know, he's ago. he's now at Microsoft. Yeah, I know. He's a, sci- he's a Microsoft researcher. Yeah. And in fact, some of his pages from Microsoft are what I was reading where he was like talking. He has he has papers, you know, what we learned from the PDP 11 and uh, like of no interest to anyone but someone like me who's like, oh, I want to know what you learned from the PDP 11. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. And then yeah. there's uh, there's also the Digi Barn. We've interviewed them. I think they're up okay. in the Santa Cruz Mountains. And he's he's like you. He's just collected a ton of stuff and has people come up and so forth. Um, uh, that's Bruce Damer who does that. So he has a cray <laughs> in there, among other things. He's got an amazing collection. So th- I, I think you're right. I think there are a lot of hobbyists like you who who do this. I think one of the big differences with you is that you really want to program these things. Uh, yes, exactly. I don't want to just run it. I mean, I actually want to write code for yeah. it. I think that would be you know, really interesting. So that I, I agree with you. I hope you get around to that project. I will, but not soon because that means you'll have been retired for some time. And we don't want you to retire. Uh, yeah. I'm, I'm sure it's necessary for us to keep ourselves active and keep our brains yeah. going. And yeah. there's, a, there are a number of things, projects that I would like to execute on those classic machines. And the fact is newer machines are just not so fun to program in assembler. They're all getting, you know, very sort of risk like, and they're not designed to be really people friendly at, right. at, at the right. machine level. And these deck machines, they really were the eight and the 11 and the Vax. They were that, that back. It's funny too. Cause I actually read where Gordon Bell was saying, you know, our customers are programming in assembly language are, you know, writing code for our mini computers in assembly language. So we need it to be a good assembly language. It's like, wow, when did you last hear that? I mean, I'm the only one I know who programmed in assembly language still. No kidding. No kidding. Yeah. Well, uh, do we have any uh, notes? Oh, we got a bunch of stuff here, Leo. Um, Security wise, it's been a very quiet 
week. Hallelujah. Um, of course, Patch one, Tuesday is coming next Tuesday. So uh, that's true. And yeah. so we'll, we'll have news of that. But at this point, uh, the only really interesting story that I ran across, I thought our listeners would get a kick out of. And I'm sure you probably picked up on it because you're wired into what's going on. And that was about the road sign in uh, Austin, <laughs> <Yeah>. Texas, <laughs> that was hacked. Um, a temporary electronic road sign uh, near, probably not coincidentally, the University of Texas at Austin was was hacked in the wee hours of the night to say the end is near caution zombies ahead <laughs> run for cold climate <laughs> and and the reason this is of interest to security now listeners is get a load of this the hack depended upon the fact that the equipment was using its default password. No, no one had no. Who, ever set this up. The city employees don't change the passwords on these things. So a lock was broken that gave the, the vandals access to the computer inside, which they were only able to reprogram because the password was the default uh, for cautions. Zombie ahead is what it says. Oh, that is so funny. Yeah. Oh, yeah, so because the, the the password was default, um, they were able to change the text. Oh, and then they changed the password to non-default, <laughs> which 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 further thwarted the city's efforts to change the text away from the zombie warning. They had to well, take I, the thing home back to the shop to reprogram it. It took a number of hours for the manufacturer to get involved. And reset the password so oh, that the employees so could then funny. put the text back to what it should be. Zombies so, in area, run. What do you think? Do you think people saw that and believed it? No, I think people got a kick out. Oh, I hope. <laughs> I hope. Just the fact that it was on sort of an official electronic billboard wouldn't, wouldn't uh, give it too much credibility. I think in this day and age... <laughs> People are like, ah, okay, so, you know, we're near the university, gee, what a coincidence. The end is near. Zombies in area run. Nazi zombies run. <laughs> that is very funny. Now, um, in other errata, I was listening to you a few days ago when you were going through a dictionary definition. You were saying that you had some show where you, you read a definition. Oh, I was joking around, but I have, somebody gave me this book, Radio Television electronics dictionary well and the word that you was it? you jokingly talked about but then did not answer was hysteresis was that it? very close to my heart hysteresis well now why is that close to your heart well because it's the way core memory works oh. and i've got core memory all over the place at the moment um what hysteresis refers to the, the it the a a feature of of magnetization and other properties where um and it's it's sort of well, difficult. I should i read the definition out of here the response okay. of a magnetic material to an alternating magnetic field the lagging of the induced magnetism behind the magnetizing force two of an oscillator a behavior that may occur in which multiple values of the output power and or frequency will correspond to given values of an operating parameter in radiation counter tubes, the temporary change in the counting rate versus voltage characteristic caused by previous operation. And then there's, uh, you know, hysteresis error, hysteresis heater, hysteresis loop, loss, motor, 
this is clearly an important part of the radio television electronics dictionary. It's almost a, a quarter of a page there. Um, what, one way to think of it is if you, for example, in, in, in the case of, of magnetization, um, if, you, if you apply a, 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 a magnetic force against something which is ferrous um, and, and you don't reach a threshold, then you, you haven't like pushed it over this hump. And so when you back off, you end up with no residual magnetization. But if it, but it, but if you do reach this hump, it sort of it pushes it past a point where in in the so-called hysteresis curve, such that that it that then it takes a a greater a reverse force to get it back. So so it, it's sort of an it, it, it's it's a nonlinear response in. In, in, in the case of, mag, uh, of, of a magnetic field and so something that you're magnetizing, um, and it's the, it's the reason we have magnetic memory back in the old days, you know, core memory. How interesting. Hysteresis. So, hysteresis. Yeah, I mean, I, I, um, you know, it, it's a well-known concept in engineering, and I can sort of, you know, close my eyes and, and see this sort of a box-like curve, which is called the hysteresis curve, where it goes, it go, you, you, you follow one path on the way up, and instead of retracing your path on the way back, you, you take a very different path on the way back due to the, the fact that you've, you've affected some, some, some object of physics through, through, go on, through, through, through moving up, you've changed something such, such that coming back to where you came from, you take a different path. Mm. So it's a, uh, it's cool. It's uh, I guess once they discovered it, they thought of ways to use it. Um, there's some sci-fi news that I wanted to bring to our listeners attention. Mm-hmm. Um, our old friend, Josh Whedon is back. He's our old friend because um, he gave us um, Firefly. Yes. Which was, you know, a spectacular series. What, what, what I was surprised about is that his new series is premiering on Fox, even though Fox screwed him. You would think I mean, he'd it, have learned his lesson. <laughs> it, was, it was Fox who, after 11 episodes, canceled his series, even though there was already, um, what, three more that had been made. They didn't even bother finish airing what he had made. And they played them all out of order, so they didn't make as much sense as they should have. I mean, they just really messed him up. And he was pissed off at the time. And, you know, and then there was a huge fan outcry because Firefly was just so fun. Um, and then it was generally regarded as, as having been a mistake for them to have canceled it. Because, I mean, it was like this, it's like, okay, why did you cancel this tremendous show? Yeah. So, of course, as, as sci-fi followers know he did produce a a feature-length film firefly which i thought was fantastic although i don't think at least in terms of box office revenue it did not even break even i don't know what's i haven't kept track of it i don't know if like in long-term dvd sales he ended up you know making money on it but the point is he's back with a new series that is premiering this coming Friday the 13th, February, Friday the 13th, 2009, um, at 9 p.m. on, on obviously on Friday, which follows the new time slot for Terminator 
on Fox, you know, the Sarah Connor Chronicles, which I'm also loving. I think it, it, it's a good um, it, it's a good show. Anyway, the, I've seen a premiere of it, and it's about what they call programmable people. And Wikipedia has a nice treatment of it. Reading from what re- Wikipedia wrote, it says, um, Eliza Dushku plays a young woman named Echo, a member of a group of people known as actives or dolls. Oh, and the series is called Dollhouse. What? The, the, the dolls have had their personalities wiped so that they can be imprinted with any number of new personas, Ooh. including memory, muscle memory, skills, and language for different assignments. They're hired out for particular jobs, crimes, fantasies, and occasional good deeds. On missions, actives are monitored internally whatever that means, and remotely by handlers. In between tasks, they are mind-wiped again back into a childlike state and live in a futuristic dormitory lab, a hidden facility nicknamed the Dollhouse. The story follows Echo, or I guess the series, uh, the, uh, the, the, the series story arc follows Echo, who begins in her mind-wiped state to become self-aware. So I don't know anything about it. I'm not that saying it's cool. Great. Sounds it's, really uh, I mean, cool. And jo- Josh has done Joss. good things. Josh. 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 I think it's J-O-S-S. Yeah. Okay. Oh, you're right. I, I wrote Josh. That's what, why I'm yeah. reading it. But yeah. it's Josh. Josh. Um, he's done good things. Um, my tech support guy, Greg, was a big fan of Buffy, the vampire yeah. slayer. And I, yeah. and I used to tease him about it endlessly. <laughs> I, I go, Buffy? Really? <laughs> I have to go back and watch it because... People love that show. Well, and apparently it was the writing. He kept saying, it's the writing. It's the writing. It's the, Joss the writing is again. so good. Yeah. And then Angel was a, a, a spun off from right. Buffy. Right. Um, and Joss did those things too. So anyway, I have hopes. You know, I like I mean, the I, idea of dolls that can be programmed with your... Oh, I love it. And I saw th- in this preview, it's wonderful looking. It's like, okay, we're good. I hope I hope 9 o'clock is a late enough time slot for this because <laughs> it could looks be. like it it could be, could be re- way good. Yeah. yeah. Um, and during the Super Bowl, I picked up, I, I saw it was toward the beginning of the game was a new Star Trek trailer that's got me, you know, panting yet again. The good news is we don't have to wait forever. It's the, uh, star, this, the new Star Trek movie comes out on May 8th. Um, and the, the existing trailer that uh, everyone has seen, I hope has seen, you know, has the young Jim Kirk at maybe... I don't know, age 12, driving that that um, classic red, is it a Corvette, I think? Have you, have you seen that trailer? No, I haven't seen oh, it yet. Oh, I can't give it I away. I know then. it's there. And there it's, well, yeah, we have to be careful because not everybody's seen it. But it's yeah. it's it's Jim and uh, Spock back at Starfleet Academy, right? Well, that I mean, that, that is the, you know, this is when they meet. This is right. when, when, when Kirk and Spock first meet. And apparently, you know, Kirk grabs some people and commandeers a ship and runs off with it or does something. Oh, he so, was always bad, wasn't he? He was always, yes. He was always <laughs> Always different. a rebel. Um, and so, okay, so that's May 8th. On the 22nd of May is the fourth Terminator movie. So we get the fourth installment of the of a feature-length Terminator movie, uh, Terminator Salvation, that, of course, you know, I'll be there for. And what's and finally, what's interesting is that that was the weekend that another much anticipated major sci-fi movie 
was going to be released, but it got bumped back to Christmas. In fact, the same week that his other major movie, little something called Titanic, was released. And this is James Cameron's avatar that he's been wanting to do and working on for 12 years. Holy cow. This is, it is his major return to the big screen. Um, the, the plot is something like a, a, uh, a wounded veteran uh, goes to some planet and um, where there's an indigenous people and somehow combines or merges or does something, um, a bunch of this is, is computer-generated. So it's a hybrid of live actors and, um, and computer-generated characters. Um, uh, and we, we have Sigourney Weaver, um, one of Cameron's uh, great friends, is going to be in. They were gonna, they were, for a while, they were going to call her Shipley. In in Avatar, well, that's his, that's her name in Aliens, right? Well, no, Ripley, Ripley, of course, that's right, famously, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but so, but but clearly making it it's similar right. as a little play on that. But they ended up changing her name to something else. So, and it's some sort of three D technology. One of the benefits for Cameron is that by moving it back from May until December, that will allow more theaters the opportunity to install three D screens, whatever that means. I've not looked into what this, the 3D technology. Yeah, I'm not crazy about those 3D things, but yeah, I'm not either. I'd I'd, I'd rather not bother with it. But yeah. you know what yeah. the hell. Yeah. Uh, okay. And that's all of my random that's news. The, I that's do the sci-fi I, news of the week. Sci-fi, the sci-fi update. Yeah. yeah. I did have a very short little fun quip about Spinrite. John Salter wrote. I ran across his his note when I was going through the, the mailbag. He said, "Hi, Steve." Oh, interrupted by Fred. Um, <laughs> like coincidentally, doesn't, doesn't we just me. sold a copy of Spinrite, and I'm reading a Spinrite story. <laughs> Hi, Steve. I was making a video for Yubico on using the YubiKey for TrueCrypt whole disk encryption using a YubiKey pre-programmed for generating a static 44-character password. While TrueCrypt was encrypting the disk for this video, it started complaining when it reached a bad sector. Of course, I just deferred the encryption. TrueCrypt, he says, TrueCrypt has really thought of everything. Rebooted from my Spinrite CD and let Spinrite do its stuff. Sure enough, a bad sector was found and Dynastat kicked in. I rebooted and TrueCrypt came back and offered to complete the decryption from where it was interrupted, which it completed successfully. Very cool. He says, when I, when I finish the video, I'll send you a link. Wow. So, and I, I remember when I was myself vetting TrueCrypt. I mentioned, you know, some some time ago, some versions ago, that I was really wanting to put TrueCrypt through its paces. So I used some tools that I have, some proprietary hard disk technology that I've, I developed for Spinrite to deliberately damage sectors and, you know, making them unreadable on the drive, hmm. um, which I'm able to do. And which is part of what, what I do for, for testing Spinrite. And sure enough, TrueCrypt ran across, stopped cold, refused to go any further. Um, then I fixed the sector with Spinrite, and I basically m- deliberately did what, what John inadvertently did, which was, you know, he actually had a bad sector on the disk, and TrueCrypt, you know, can't, can't go past it. 
but running SpinWrite on the disk fixes it, of course, and then TrueCrypt is able to proceed. Well, there you go. Yeah. Pretty cool. Thank Happiness. you. Thank you, SpinWrite, once again. All right, we've got 12 questions, good and true, and we're going to get to those in just a second, Steve. Great. But before we do, I want to mention our friends at Audible.com who give us the chance to do this show with their support. We appreciate it, Audible, and remind you that you can get an Audible account with a credit toward the book absolutely free. That's the best deal. Get to give you a chance to try Audible by going to audiblepodcast.com. That's a kind of different URL than the one we usually use, audiblepodcast.com slash security now. Have you ever read any Terry Pratchett? Do you know any of his stuff? Oh, the name's familiar. He writes kind of comedic um, fantasy stuff. It's not probably your exact cup of tea, but yeah, boy. It's not hard enough sci-fi for it's me. It's not hard sci-fi, but it's about the funniest stuff out there. The Discworld series is is wonderful. It's kind of, uh, it's a little Hitchhiker's Guide. It's uh, it's just wonderful. It may be more fantasy-oriented. Um, I'm going to recommend tonight Nightwatch, Discworld number 27, which is... Whoa, uh, how many are there? Uh, there are well, quite a few. Obviously more than 27. There are quite a few. This one he wrote uh, is about uh, 15 years old, so I think there's uh, quite a few after this one. Um, he's actually still writing, although it's he's slowed down a little bit uh, with, uh, with age, but... Uh, he is just a wonderful writer. Very funny. And this is just a hysterical one. If you've not read any, you know, you can start Discworld anywhere. It's nice to start at the beginning, I guess, but you could start anywhere. And this is just a, a wonderful story. Uh, one of my favorite Discworld stories. If you've not read any of Terry Pratchett, this would be a great one to start with. Nightwatch. Listen to a little bit of it. That's one of the nice things about the Audible site. You can go there and just listen to the. But you don't even have to be a member to listen and see what what's there but i do suggest a membership it's the most affordable way to get your audible books with the gold membership you get a book a month and it's the gold membership you'll sign up for right now if you go to audiblepodcast.com slash security now and by the way if you're already a member or you sign up uh, for the audible account before uh, february 15th you can right now get a free book the seven habits of highly effective people stephen covey's classic on, uh, on on being effective in the world Go to audible.com slash twit habits for that freebie. We've been mentioning that for the last couple of weeks, and that runs out in a couple of weeks. Audible.com slash twit habits. But start by becoming a member at audiblepodcast.com slash security now. We love Audible. We know you'll love Audible. And if you've not read any Discworld, if you've not read any Terry Pratchett, Nightwatch is a great one. One of his best. I just I was rereading it the other day thinking, I've got to recommend this one. Audiblepodcast.com slash security now. We thank them so much for their support of the Security Now show. Steve, you're ready for some great questions from our great audience? No. Okay, well then, thanks for joining us. And we'll, <laughs> no, I, I have I'm actually not. Um, I forgot one. You I forgot, forgot something? something? That, I, I forgot something that I wanted to bring to our listeners' attention because I'm just so excited about it. This is dumb, but, you know, strange things get me excited. You know, <laughs> we learned that. You know we how I love my window borders to snap to the edge of the screen and to each other. I mean, it, you know, my little that little all snap utility, A L L S N A P, uh, that I've talked about a couple times. I just I when I'm using a machine that doesn't have it, I'm thinking, okay, what's what's wrong with this? Something's broken. Well, I was I, I've been allowing myself to spend a couple hours every morning um, working on the, the laying out the protocol um, for CryptoLink, even though I. I can't really start working on CryptoLink full time because I've got to get the DNS thing finished and the cookie thing finished. 
um, and I'm going to get those things done first. I've just when I was when I was working on the SSL protocol stuff for for security now. I got kind of got myself all wrapped up again in in security protocols. I thought, okay, I just have to spend some time getting this stuff down on on getting it down. Um, to do that, I wanted to use an outliner that I had not used for years called Echo E C C O, um, which was um, purchased by NetManage for a long time. Many people still consider it the ultimate PIM of all time. The problem is it's old and you still use echo. Well, I've gone back to it. I've been using it now for the last week. Um, just as an outliner, it does all this other kind of stuff. Oh, it's the most complicated PIM ever. I was going to say, I don't even understand how it works. (laughs) I I never really did. I tried it. I love it, but it's one of those things. It's a lifestyle. It's not a program. Anyway, so, but, but what happened was echo doesn't know about the mouse wheel and I didn't realize until running across Echo how much I take the yes. mouse wheel for granted. Yes. It is a wonderful thing to be able to scroll like a web page. Just, you know, I mean, it, it's uh, the, the mouse wheel is as correct as as you can get a UI. You know, the, the definition of a good user interface is one that disappears, one that you can use without thinking about it. and and when you have something that isn't mouse wheel aware, it's annoying. And so, for example, I deliberately build mouse wheel support into all the apps that I oh, write now, neat. just to make sure that that you know, if, if you're on a, if I like I I'll embed a little rich text format, an RTF control in my app for like help or or information or whatever. And it's just nice to be able to scroll it with a mouse wheel. And of course, what that saves you is needing to go over to the scroll bar and find it and then and then drag it. I mean, it's just a win. Okay, so after five days of frustration, I thought I'm going to go. There's got to be somebody who's like maybe has like made a better mouse wheel. Sure enough, this thing is free. I cannot recommend it highly enough. Um, Windows, of course, only. Unfortunately, sorry, Leo. It's called Cat Mouse. K A T M O U S E. Just put it into Google, K-A-T-M-O-U-S-E, and you'll find it. It is very tiny. It's free. It, it does exactly what you want, and even more than I was hoping for. It mouse wheel enables everything that scrolls, hmm. and you're able to even – you don't even have to give the thing you're scrolling focus. In, in Windows – one control or another always has so-called focus. You know, when buttons have focus, they, they, they're highlighted. When normally, like when scrolling areas have focus, you can't see them. You can't see that it has focus. So you'll, you know, and this is what something that they, even people who use the mouse wheel are experiencing all the time. You've got to click on the thing first, and then the mouse wheel will work on it. Because until you click on it, it doesn't have focus. This little cat mouse, K-A-T-M-O-U-S-E, knows what you're hovering over and scrolls that, even if it's not on top. So you could have, you know, and in fact, I'm, I'm looking right now, I'm, I'm, I have our, our, the PDF of our Q&A is underneath the notes that I had. And so I'm able to simply move the mouse over either of these two windows 
And when I scroll it, the proper pain scrolls. Anyway, I love it. I mean, I'm addicted to this thing. It's so nice to be able to scroll whatever the mouse is over. So I just wanted to let our listeners know if they're similarly, you know, mouse wheel people as I am, that this little K-A-T-M-O-U-S-E, it really makes the mouse wheel much better under Windows. I'll have to give it a shot. It looks really cool. It's perfect. Yeah, I'll see if it works with Windows 7. I'm pretty much Windows 7 everywhere now. And Leo, that's just a miracle. Well, no, I still use Max. I just say when I use Windows, I'm using Windows 7. It is a miracle. I, it's uh, it's the most, uh, you know, in some ways it's Mac-like. It's uh, very clean and simple and you will like it. You will be glad in about tw- in 12 years when you move to it. That's right. When I get ready. <laughs> you will be very happy. All it's right. It's funny because I, I have heard you talking about it, like with Paul often. Yeah. And... And I just, I sort of smile because, you know, when you're talking about like all, you know, no driver problems and, and all this, I mean, it's, it's really clear. I'm, and I'm sure it is to you too, that it's just Vista. It's Vista. That's why there's no, there's no new driver model. Right. It's uh, it, but, but I'm not, comp- I'm not praising it for its lack of driver issues. I'm praising it for cleaning up the UI primarily. Yes. I think they, I think they clearly did that. They, on their webpage, they talk about how they listened to us and I think it's it's interesting too that you know they changed the name. It, it reminds me of when you know Olay that was just stillborn at Microsoft. You know the object linking and embedding technology O L E, right. so called Olay, right. um, which became where, which became Dom and which became Corba. They, well, they just, couldn't get it off the ground. Right. It, it was you know it it initially was it was so com- confusing and strange that programmers disliked it and nothing Microsoft could do right. could change that. And then Microsoft applied as they often do marketing when technology fails, you know, f- fall back to marketing. And so some guy at Microsoft said, um, Hey, you know, we've got this new thing. And the other person said, well, uh... what? And they said, it's called active X. <laughs> And the other guy, oh, ooh, that sounds Act better. X, I love that. What is it? And Olay. the guy said, uh, Olay. Olay. And the other guy, well, really? He said, but it sounds so much better. And I yeah. said, and the guy, the marketing guy says, I, I know. And so people will love it, yep. even though it's the same old, you know, dried fruit we had before. <laughs> yeah. Still, that's Microsoft know, and, right there. And so now we have Windows Seven. You know, basically it's Vista with less noise. Right. So, right. Yeah, but I'm really glad you like it. That's yeah. that's good news. And it has some Windows Snap features you'll probably like. Oh, yeah. You just stay tuned. Okay. All right. Now, it's time for our questions. We're going to begin with Ian Alexander from Nottingham, England. Always a great place. We get lots of letters, it seems, from Nottingham. I'm not sure why. Wrote to Leo, uh, and it says, Paul. Yeah, Paul Therat. You forwarded his I note. did forward this to you. That's right. Yep. Okay. And so I figured out we ought to talk about it. I thought you might want to know and share with your listeners, uh, we were talking about the Microsoft uh, uh, Malicious Software Removal Tool, the MSRT. Right. He says, you can run the MSR util- MSRT utility on demand in Windows 7, but it ain't called MSRT or even MRT. You have to, to manually start it in Windows, you have to type KB890830 in the Start Menu, menu search box. You'll see the results. Hit Return. And there's MSRT. Knowledge base 890830. 
Yeah. Now, okay. This this was I, I thought. Well, okay. You were you you forwarded this to me and, and to Paul. I thought we ought to discuss it because you know essentially it, it's you're not putting in the run box because that's not the name of of a program. You're you're putting it into you're searching the, for the name, search. which is longer. Yeah. Exactly. And so it's you know Windows hyphen KB eight nine zero eight three zero hyphen version two point five XE is you know right. is the is right. the full name. So it's just a sort of a quick way to get it. And of course the danger is that I don't know how static that name is. Whether they're changing that every month, and, you know, the fact that it says version two point five leads me to believe that they're evolving that particular entry. Right. So. You know, for for Windows Seven people, um, you could run MSRT also, but and the way you do it for now is with this KB eight nine zero eight three zero. Just you know, a little FYI there. <laughs> write that down on the back of your hand. Yeah, make, keep me- memorize that. Yeah, and then destroy it. Speaking of uh, MSRT, Kobe or Carby in uh, Reno, Nevada, shares his findings. He says. Steve, I'd almost written to you about uh, very similar findings that you had with the MRT and the um, Eudora attachments. Like you, I ran the full version of the Microsoft malicious software removal tool, and it detected some viruses in some very old Eudora attachments that were on my computer. However, MRT was not able to clean them, so I ran the corporate edition of Semantic Antivirus against the same files. SAV said the files were clean. I removed SAV. And installed EI's Blink, scanned the same files. It reported the files were clean. Since these attachments were very old and they had a file extension I wasn't familiar with, I ended up just deleting them. Also, I traded uh, Eudora for Gmail several years ago. I'm pretty sure I didn't need those files. I just thought you might be interested to know that two different AV programs said the files were clean, but Microsoft said they were infected. My guess is MRT was showing a false positive, but I don't know for sure. That happens a lot with viruses, doesn't it? Well, it, it certainly can. The The problem, of course, is that as viruses have become trickier, the the scanners have had to become increasingly heuristic. So they're not just matching a, a, a rigidly known pattern. They're having to essentially introduce some gray area and say, oh, this, well, you know, they're, 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 they're saying, oh, this looks like a virus. I, I got myself off the track here because... For example, it happens to my GRC's freeware from time to time. Right. Some version of AV will suddenly decide that my decombobulator is is evil, and we get a bunch of email from people saying, oh, your decombobulator, I downloaded it directly from your website. My AV program says it's, you know, it's malicious. And it's like, okay, wait till they update again, and they'll fix it. Because, you know, and by the, in the meantime, please tell them that they're, right. that they're giving a false positive. So... That does happen, um, and I so I wanted to I wanted to share this with our listeners in case other people have this experience. My experience is somewhat different. I I do think that given what I saw, that this thing had found evil stuff in in um, in my Eudora attachments folder. But it certainly is the case that false positives occur. And we, so what we're saying is we don't know who's false positive. We don't know if it was Microsoft making a mistake or the other antivirus or SAV not missing it. it. Right. Yep. Both of which happen. Yep. False positives and false negatives. It's also possible that the those AV tools at some point when something gets really old and there's no more incident of it, um, they may well right. be removing detection right. just for the sake of keeping their own their own um, pattern updates at, at modest size, whereas Microsoft might choose 
to just let theirs continue. Um, I did look at the at the MRT.exe. Um, uh, oh, I, I think as a result of our, the question we're about to get to, um, and it's more than 20 megs. Wow. Inside. It's a monster. So you couldn't do that in the old days. I mean, yeah. you, you couldn't silently, without warning, deliver a 20 meg file and say, here, run this. Only Microsoft. I mean, this, it just shows you how much. I mean, broadband has just changed a lot. Really has. Mike Sawinski in Rochester, New York, encountered an old copy of Microsoft system. I'm sorry, malicious software removal tool. Steve, listening to SN180, thanks a lot. You gave a tip for launching MRT using start, run, MRT. The reason this works is that Windows finds MRT in the System32 folder. The, note, the copy of MRT on the hard di- drive is an old copy. This trick does not find the latest copy of MRT and download it. I just tried this, and it launched the December 2008 copy of MRT. I went to Windows Update, and the January 9th MRT was there. If someone's having trouble with an infection running last month's MRT, probably won't help them. Thanks for all the good work on security now. So then how do you run the malicious software removal tool? Well, I, I this was an in, this brought up an interesting point because it made me think, oh, what's going on here? Right. So I, I and I would recommend our users do the, our listeners do this too. It's fun to just search your C drive for MRT. That is anything with MRT in it. You'll find in I found a bunch of fonts that had MRT embedded in their name. Huh. I also found something I didn't know was there, which was interesting, is an MRT.log. And that's very cool. It's under the, in my case, it was under the Windows debug directory. And it is a log that the MRT appends to every time it's run. And in this log was an entry for every single month. Actually, there were a few earlier months skipped a year or two ago. Um, but then Microsoft got um, uh, rigorous about publishing a new one every month and running it every month. And so this log shows you every single time that it's been run silently in the background. I mean, you know, and also when you run it manually. But, you know, there was so there was a whole log of it all of it running on my system for, you know, quite, you know, for several years, even though I had no idea it was doing that. Wow. Um, and. The time that I ran it manually, when it found all this stuff, um, you know, there's a log of everything it found. So the log is also very cool. But there was just one copy on my system, MRT.exe, in the Windows System 32 folder. Um, when I ran it in the title bar, it told me that it was the January 09 MRT. So I think what happened in Mike's case is, for whatever reason, his Windows Update did not download, oh. or he doesn't have it configured, but one way or another, it's not running the current MRT. So, so what I wanted to the the point I wanted to raise to our listeners is just put MRT in the Run dialog under your Start menu. It'll take a few seconds because it's twenty megabytes to to load. Um, and it was funny too because when I ran it, I was thinking. Okay, did I type that right? Well, why is it taking so long to come up? Well, it's a 20 megabyte ex- executable. You know, it takes a while to suck that in off the drive. Um, and I'd be glad and, to know that they're not storing 
20 different copies of this 20 megabyte executable exactly. on my drive. Exactly. <laughs> um, but the point is that it's instantly visible in the menu bar. When you run MRT.exe, it'll tell you what month you've got. And it's worth just doing a double check. Um, Mike sort of did it inadvertently. Um, but, you know, I had this month's the most recent MRT. And I imagine a week from now, when we pass over another patch Tuesday, I'll have February. But I'm going to check. I'm going to just, you know, put MRT in after we are talking about it next week and say, okay, yeah, now mine says February 09 rather than January 09 as it does now. Um, if by any chance you don't have the current one, there's probably a reason, well, there obviously is a reason, but you may want to figure out what that is because it means you're not being updated hmm. as as you probably want to be. So when he what he found was not the uh, January edition, but just a, a, a stub or something. No. Um, it it he, was there, he, but he, it wasn't getting installed. Yes. He found December 08's copy, which right. is the only one on his system, and he should have had January's. Yeah. But he didn't. Huh. So, I'll have to run it on my systems and now check. Yeah, just, just you know. So little, it'll I mean, say, it says in the title bar. You just yep, bang, you know, comes right up. Okay. Well, it doesn't come right up. It takes a while to, to load itself. Now, we're going to get a new one in a week, so uh, this exactly. Tuesday. So, exactly. Yeah, okay. Probably a good so idea a at the beginning tip. of every month to check that's that. That's a neat tip. I yeah, like that. Very good. Moving on to our next question. Because otherwise you don't know. It's running in the background silently. The log does tell you, so you could check the log. Um, but but this is a, a simple, easy way to know, hey, look, I got a new copy, and presumably it ran. And in fact, you could check the log to see if it did. Derek Robinson, Unix geek, <laughs> takes issue. That's what he called himself. Unix geek with YubiKey as a second factor. He says, Steve, for a second week, you've spoken of using a YubiKey in static password mode and got it wrong. You talk about having a password. And then adding a YubiKey password to it, making a very long password. This is good. I have no problem with the idea. But then you say it's two-factor authentication. Something you have and something you know. Problem is, YubiKey in static mode really isn't something you have. It's something you're too lazy to remember. It's no more like something you have than writing your password would be on a, on a Post-it note. Since it would be very possible to remember a static password if you try, it really isn't a second factor. You don't need to have it. You could have it memorized, and what's more to the point, a keystroke logger will remember the static password quite well. It doesn't need the YubiKey. Therefore, something you have aspect is valid only when a YubiKey is used in its one-time password mode. As soon as you remove the one-time function, you lose that something you have function. It's just a second password. I know you know this, but uh, but got mixed up with the wording, but let's put it right. Love the show, says Derek. Well, I thought that was interesting. Um, I mean, uh, he's right that it's not something you have to have uh you know it's something you want to have because it's typing out 64 characters in the in the 256 bit mode 64 characters of gibberish i mean that you probably couldn't even type in correctly i have enough type tr trouble typing in the windows product code correctly let alone 16 characters of of you know right. really gibberish stuff right um so um I mean, technically, yeah, if it's static, I mean, it's no different than having, it's just remembering something for you. Right. And, you know, and, and so I guess it, it it's sort of a question of, a little bit of a question of definitions, because, you know, it, it he's right that it is, it is static. So a key, so the, the vulnerability is that a keystroker, a, key, 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 a keystroke logger could, could 
log it and remember it so you don't have the strength of it being a one-time password. So it's it's not something you have that's a one-time password that 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 uses the one-timeness to be provably something you have, but you know, due to the due, due to its nature, it's something that you want to have. So it's like okay, maybe it's not Two factor, but uh, maybe it's one and a half factors. No, see, <laughs> I'm joking. I'm, you know, maybe it's one and three quarters. You know, it's it's something you're really glad you have because right. if you didn't, then you'd have to type this thing in by hand. Right. So, you know, I agree with him pedantically. It's not the same as something that you, you have no alternative but to have because it's going to generate a one-time password and you won't know it until it does. And it'll never do it again, so you're thwarting keystroke loggers. So, yes, I know, I, I agree um, that it's not the same as two-factor authentication where it's not well, you, two different things that you know. Right. You'd agree yeah. if I wrote the password down and pasted it on a post-it note to my screen. That doesn't, you know, a second password doesn't make it two-factor. Correct. Yeah. One really good factor. <laughs> Well, I use, and actually this is to the point, I use uh, a program that generates a password, hashed password based on a mixing a password I know with the top level domain name of the site I'm on and then generates a unique password for that site. But that's not two-factor authentication, even though it's it's using two, fa- two things, it's not two-factor, it's something I know. Correct. Uh, Paul in Portland, Oregon says... Secure mail can be easy. Hi, Steve. In response to Wes's question in the Q&A episode uh, we did last time about secure email, I've been wondering the same thing myself, which is how do I send an encrypted email to someone without forcing them to do the whole key dance thing? I'd like the ability to send the occasional encrypted email should I need to send my social security number or other sensitive information to someone. Well, I recently discovered Komodo has a new free product called Secure Email. The idea is... Only the sender configures their email client using free certificates provided by Komodo to send encrypted email. If the receiver is not set up for decryption, they're given a one-time session certificate and the option to decrypt it using a web reader service. I'd really like your thoughts on this product. It's a secure-email.komodo.com. Thanks. Love the show. Oh, this is interesting. But see, on the face of it, I don't understand how it would work. How would it guarantee that the person asking for decryption is the person you sent it to? Yeah. Um, and and first of all, I, I I went to that link and there's a, you know, Komodo page with a whole bunch of bullet points and all kinds of features and stuff. And I immediately, my eyes went out of focus. <laughs> uh, it was like, okay, wait a minute. I thought we wanted to make this easy. So So this is certificates on the sending end and then... You send the receiver certificate, but if they're not set up, then then you give the you get a one-time certificate from Komodo, and then you go to Komodo's website and you have their yeah. server do the decryption for you. So so now you're trusting them not to care about what's being decrypted. You you've lost. Oh, the that's trust. true. You're giving them the information. You've lost the the TNO, my favorite acronym, trust no one, um, because you, now you're trusting them, and it's like okay, wait a minute. There was a little cute, perfect little decryption program that I've talked about before called AxCrypt, A-X-C-R-Y-P-T. It's open source. It's free. It's 
it's a perfect little um, it uses AES long key encryption. Um, the guy is into encryption. Um, it's it's simple to use. And in fact, there's an Axe Decrypt, which you don't even have to install. So so I would say for somebody who just wants to occasionally send something encrypted, you just you just encrypt the file and email it and the little Axe Decrypt program to a friend or get your you know, tell your friend to download Axe Decrypt, which is also free. And then what you have to have is some sort of an out-of-band conversation. That is to say, you know, you want to get the the secret passphrase to your friend, maybe over the phone, um, somehow secure. And then then you know, it's just it's just an easy matter to encrypt a file, email that, and then the the your your friend uses Axe Decrypt to decrypt it using the password. So to me, that I call that easy, and that makes sense for someone who only occasionally needs to send something encrypted. And of course you can store it. You can store files encrypted. You can use Axcrypt for all kinds of purposes like that. I do wish everybody would just install open PGP or GNU privacy guard. And which is, yeah, and they will after I start using windows seven. <laughs> I use, uh, I love it. I use this, GNU privacy guard. I install it on every machine. I use a plugin for Apple mail. I use Enigmail on a Thunderbird. Boy, um, are you secure? Well, it's not, you know, I actually don't encrypt very often. If there's somebody, signatures. I use it for signatures because people yep. impersonate me. So if you get an email from me that is not uh, signed, then it's not me. And if it's signed and you're running one of these programs and uh, GNU Privacy Guard is free, you can verify that it's me. And then I upload my key to the key servers and hope that people uh, who know it's me sign it. And I change, I just change the key. I change the key at the beginning of the year, every year uh, they expire. Uh, I learned that because I had about 15 unexpired older keys on the key servers. They're still there. Use the most recent key if you're going to do that. And then if somebody wants to send me encrypted email, they they can go to leoville.com or go to the key server, download my public key, and send me encrypted email. Yep. And once we've had an encrypted dialogue, our all of our conversations are encrypted automatically from then on. I think it's a very simple system. Um, there are some programs. I'm st- I, I play with a program on Windows that I really like called The Bat. It's a kind of high-end email program. It's from Russia. <laughs> I don't know if I should trust it, but I looked at it long a long I time ago. Um, I think maybe it was when Eudora was was. It's Eudora like, yeah. It's very powerful. Thirty-five yeah. bucks, but it has built in. And I love this. Is one of the reasons I really uh, recommend it. Is it has built in Open PGP or S MIME certificate encryption. You choose which you want. It'll generate a certificate for you. Um, and that's pretty easy. Nice. If Outlook would do that, you know, if out, for instance, why doesn't Microsoft build in certificate and, uh, uh, you know, just self-signed certificates at least. Right. Just build that in. If it's built in, then everybody can use it and it's transparent. All right. I'm sorry. I'm gonna get off my high horse. No, I mean, I, I, I think in an, in a, in a, in an environment where, where high value content is being shared, for example, all the attorneys in a law firm should have their own certificates. Oh, yeah. They're, you know, and, and so, and on, and on their laptops. So when they're, when they're mailing, you know, client confidential contracts and things around, they're just automatically encrypted, you know, like within the firm. And then, um, and, and then maybe even set up some of their, their more important clients the, the same way. Say, right. look, we're going to, we're going to be sharing email. We need to do this in a, in a safe way. I would really appreciate that. Instead of those silly signatures to say, if you got this by accident, don't read it. <laughs> yeah. Yes. That'll work. 
<laughs> yes. That'll work. Dick, uh, I'm sorry. Yeah, Dick Victor in uh, Milwaukee, Wisconsin has some Yubico and YubiKey news. I think this YubiKey thing is the single most popular thing you've ever done, I'm starting to think. Uh, well, believe me, as I'm, you know, the, re- the, the way I choose questions is I sort of scan through the subjects and people are just super excited about yeah. the YubiKey. Yeah. Um, I know you and many listeners are YubiKey fans. So I thought you might be interested to know that Yubico is planning a small change in the firmware of the YubiKey in the next firmware version so that it can be used, oh, I'm loving this, in static password mode for pre-boot password entry for a TrueCrypt encrypted system partition. The present firmware does not provide for the YubiKey to get recognized pre-boot, and he's got a, a link in here on the YubiKey for, Yubico forums. seems there's a lot of interest in the static mode, probably because it's something we can use even before there's widespread adoption of YubiKey it's more secure OTP mode, and also because it works offline when there's no authentication server available. And 64 characters of total gibberish with 256 bits of entropy ain't bad, even if they're limited uh, using that limited mod hex alphabet. Good point. Okay, so here's, here's a story. I, I've had a dialogue with Yubico because I wanted to understand what this change was. Um, And I have some interesting news for our listeners relative to getting their keys updated, which Yubico will do for free for anyone who who really needs it done. They'd rather not have everyone who they ever sold a key to send it back if it's not necessary, but they they can do it for some people. Um, The way people have been using their TrueCrypt, I'm sorry, their YubiKeys with TrueCrypt has been post-boot when when TrueCrypt is running and they'll use the key rather than entering the password into TrueCrypt in Windows to, you know, put a partition online or unlock a directory or, or whatever they're using uh, TrueCrypt for. The reason it has not been possible to do it for preboot is there's a bit in the configuration header of USB devices which specifies whether the device is a boot device or not. That is, does it have any semantic meaning in a boot environment? And that's why people may wonder, like, why some USB some USB um, drives can be recognized by the BIOS where others won't be. It was because back in the beginning of USB drives, no one was really thinking of them in terms of boot devices for BIOSes. So even some drives don't have that bit set, mm. which means the BIOS, which looks at the US, a USB boot-enabled BIOS, a modern BIOS that looks at USB devices, will see that this bit is not set, will ignore it, and it's not until Windows or whatever OS you're using is running that that bit is no longer important. So what the Ubico folks have done is in version 1.3.3 this firmware update they are now deliberately setting this bit i had a, a dialogue an email with uh stina's husband jacob who was the the en- engineer on this <laughs> you sold two in the show ed um <laughs> and he explained that you know he deliberately left that bit clear because he thought, you know, who would want to use the YubiKey before the OS is booted? Because after all, it was at that time only a one-time password device. So you'd have to have networking running right. in order to contact a remote server in order to do anything with it. Then 
this static password of the mode of, of the YubiKey has become so popular that that there, now there's a non-communications, non-networking application. So version 1.3.3 of the firmware has the YubiKey as a boot device, which means it will be seen as a keyboard by a BIOS, and you can use it when properly configured for static first for static key mode as your boot time login a uh, boot time password for TrueCrypt, which is very cool and they have said that uh, anyone who wants to do that can send their key back to them and they will update its oh, firmware nice. and return it for free so they don't have a way to do that uh, online without sending it back to them Precisely. I'm, yeah. I'm sure there's like something they've got to do where they're, you know, they're, I don't know if they're, I don't know for sure that they're not going to exchange it for a new key. They may just put a new key. Yeah. yeah. They may do that or they may update the firmware. I don't know whether they're able to, do, to, to write new firmware into the existing key, but it is the case that if you send them a key that won't work, they will, they will one way or another send you one back that will, and you can send it either to the U.S. or, you know, their main offices. Um, and uh, um, and they'll take care of that for you. Excellent. So it's very neat. Excellent. I really, the YubiKey is so cool. Although, you know, I, I hate to use it in static key mode. I guess I could get another one. But I just love the idea of it, of uh, having it new keys all the time. You know, that's that's very cool. I I think you're right. The the, the solution is to have two keys. Two. One, for example, that you use for your Wi-Fi, you know, WPA password, or you use it, you know, to to pre-boot and uh, TrueCrypt in order to uh, have have TrueCrypt do on-the-fly decryption of your whole drive. And then you've got the other one, which is used for like online purposes, where you're where it does make sense. So you really need two, maybe three. <laughs> more is the merrier it really would be cool if they if they if they could have a dual function single yubikey oh, yeah. works both ways yeah pujan wa in uh, chicago illinois suggests a cheaper solution than yubikey another way to do it hi steve it pains me to discourage your listeners from buying the yubikey since it's a very good technology that uh, is already inexpensive is only going to get less expensive the more that people use it However, I wanted to point out a much cheaper alternative to YubiKey for some applications. In episode 180, you discussed the use of YubiKey's static password. Leo commented he'd like to use that static password as the master password for a password utility. You don't need YubiKey to do this. I use a password utility called KeePass. That's a really good one. That's the open source one. It allows you to use key files in addition to an, op- in addition to an optional password. Oh, of course. As a result, I save a key file on a USB stick and have it automatically search for key files on removable media. As a result, I get two-factor authentication. Oh, well, maybe not. <laughs> one, one, and one, and a half. One, one and three-quarter factor. <laughs> a key file on a USB key and a manual password entry. I've noticed that TrueCrypt also has a similar key file capability with the ability to designate a default key file on an external USB stick. I haven't tried it, but I doubt that a key file can be used with pre-boot authentication. These days, USB keys can be had for a few dollars. You don't need more than a few kilobytes of space for a good key file. Great point. What's even cooler, I store my key file on a very small SDHC. That's, uh, of course, um, the high capacity. What does the SD stand for? I can't even remember. Smart digital? digital. Secure digital, that's right. Secure digital high capacity camera storage card that slips into my wallet very easily. 
Many computers nowadays come with built-in SDHC readers. However, I happen to have one that folds into a USB connector. Very slick. To make things clear, I think uh, YubiKey is still a very good solution for things like pre-boot authentication. And its one-time password feature is awesome. But not the only way to do it. I I should have mentioned that. Of course, KeePass will do that. Well, and we've never really... We've we've brushed on the idea of a key file, but we've never really talked about it in depth or in detail. And, you know, it's, it's certainly an interesting solution. Um, I, I guess I'm, I'm less rah-rah about it because it's, it's always felt to me a little bit like it's, it's security through obscurity. You know, the idea being that, that the, the encryption system knows where to find key material in a file. You know, the file's not changing. It's static. Um, it's true that if you make it a removable file, then no, no, you know, then somebody's completely out of luck without that. And I guess, you know, the, the thing it brings you is, is absolute proof against a weak password. You would certainly, I, I think, would always still want to use a passphrase of some kind in addition to the key file, um, obviously to prevent somebody from using that, you know, like plugging his, his HDSC into a laptop. And if that was the only thing that it needed, then it would be able to access his files with, without, without him at all. So it's, again, it's, it's, it's certainly stronger than, than nothing, but a really good passphrase that is sufficiently long um, is going to provide you with the same security. It's worth noting that that the contents of the key file is going to always end up being hashed down to the the length of the crypt encryption key, whether it's 128 bits or 256 bits. But um, as we've seen, only 64 characters, and that's 64 limited characters, is 256 bits so you know and 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 so what 32 characters of a 16 character alphabet that's 128 bits um if that was is is the key length that you're using for decryption so so the notion that you're getting more security from some multi k file is is really not the case you know you you only need a relatively short phrase in order to get as much security as as is available anything longer ends up being hashed down now again it is true that a bad passphrase that isn't really random gibberish will have an, will be inherent will have inherently less entropy than a on some file and a big file by virtue of its size is will end up approaching that the maximum entropy that you can get out of 256 bits or whatever the file is hashed down into. But it's not the case that like a big file ends up having like that big a key. You end up, you know, there's diminishing returns as the file size increases. So, you know, yes, it is, um, as we've seen earlier in this episode, it's not a true full second factor because it's static um, and it's um, it's in that sense, it's like a YubiKey running statically. Um, but it, I would argue, I mean, I, I would agree that a key file is better than 
than not having one unless you have a really good static passphrase. And, and for example, a YubiKey running um, with, with um, uh, the full 64-character static pass- password is going to be good. Oh, and one other benefit of the key file is by not being input through the keyboard, whereas the YubiKey is, by not being input through the keyboard, you are you are immune to any kind of keylogger of any sort. So that's another benefit of it. Oh, yeah. But no good for logging in at boot because nothing would know to check that. Yes. Um, and in fact, even if, the, even if the SD card were recognized, we know that TrueCrypt's boot sector um, is probably, well, I'm sure it doesn't today recognize a key file, but it would have to then be modified and, and made substantially more sophisticated in order to be able to recognize the file, you know, a fat file system on, the, on that uh, SD card and, and do something proper with it. So it seems a little bit out of reach, but, yeah. you know, again, it's, it's, it's useful in that it's not, the data from the key file is not coming in through the keyboard and um, you know, combined with a passphrase, I think it's it's better security than a passphrase alone. Jim in Westchester, Pennsylvania, is not happy broadcasting his passwords all over the neighborhood. Hi, Steve. Forgive me if you've covered this previously on Security Now, but what if, for reason of circumstances, you're temporarily working from someone else's office location, you're not employed there, the only Internet access available is an open Wi-Fi hotspot, no telephone line equals no modem, huh? Oh, I see. You have to use their internet. I get it. The owner of the premises tells you that all the tenants and temps use it without problems or complaints, and it's uh. darn fast. <laughs> By the way, that's how we, if you come here, you have, we don't give you access to our internal network. You get access to an open Wi-Fi access point. Everybody else is using a wired system that's on a separate router. Um, but that's, you would be in the same situation if you if you came here and started using our Wi-Fi. So without making it too cumbersome, but some reasonable expenses, okay, what would be a good way to reasonably protect one's computer in this situation without the visiting guest, me, giving the owner and other tenants and temps any grief about running an open Wi-Fi? Thanks and great job on Security Now, regular listener Jim. Jim must have visited the Twit Cottage. That's how we do it. <laughs> but not for biz- not for our business, just for visitors. I'm glad to know that. Not not for your financial banking. Uh, Nothing. We don't we don't use the Wi-Fi for anything. Any good. any of our uh, it's all uh, wired. Uh, but we have an open access point as a convenience for people who come to visit us. Well, to answer, actually, Jim's it's not like, open. We give them a password. Never mind. Oh, good. Yeah, it's WP. Good, good, it's, good. it's it's WPA two. Of course. What am okay. I thinking? Yay. Yeah. Good. That's that's better. Yeah. Um. Well, first of all, this is one of the main reasons that you know I've got CryptoLink in my future is it's for exactly this kind of application. If Jim had a machine running at home, then he could he, he could robustly and with a, a high chance of succeeding access his his machine at home from anywhere he was on the planet um, and then surf or use the internet back out through his home connection exactly as if he were at home, not needing to trust anything between where he is and home. Um, uh, and that, now there are other VPN solutions, but uh, traditionally extremely difficult to configure. I mean, remember that I started doing an open an open yes. VPN configuration guide, and I mean I use it, but I mean you really need to have your propeller spinning pretty much twenty four seven. And 
due to some quirks of it, you cannot guarantee a connection. For example, if you happen to be in a local network whose IP address range is the same as the network at the other end, then routing doesn't work because OpenVPN is routing-based. So they're all kind of little gotchas that make it, you know, much less robust than, than well, than I believe a VPN could be and should be, which is why, you know, that's GRC's next product. But there are some, there are some commercial VPN solutions. There are some free ones that make me a little nervous because you wonder what their economic model is. How, how and why are they free? But there's also one that we've talked about, and you and I have both used, Leo, called Hotspot VPN. Yes. And I, I, I jumped over to see what the pricing model was. Now, Jim said he didn't have to be free, but he wanted to be reasonable. Well, Hotspot VPN 2, which is their their SSL-based, and it's, it's OpenVPN-based SSL, that's $10.88 per month. And you can buy it for one month, so it's a little less than $11. And I think, you know, in a temporary office mode where you're otherwise being forced to use open Wi-Fi, it's a perfect solution. You download their little installer that basically installs OpenVPN, does all the configuration and sets things up. I mean, it's very easy to use and set up. Um, and then you simply, you know, fire that up. You're Because they're out on the Internet, you're, you know that you're with a high likelihood able to access them. I think they use maybe port 80 and 443, both HTTP and HTTPS. It's been a while since... I, I used them, or maybe it was FTP and HTTP. Anyway, there were a number of ports that you were able to use to to maximize your chance of being able to connect to them, and they make a lot of sense. They have a less expensive version, Hotspot VPN 1, which is, is traditional PPTP VPN. Now, that's the VPN technology that Windows has built in. So I like that from the standpoint of you not needing to install anything on your machine, even temporarily, and it's less expensive. That's eight eighty eight a month, and they even offer it in one, three, and seven day packages for three eighty eight, five eighty eight, and six eighty eight. So six eighty eight for a week, for example. Um, but because it's PPTP, you're not quite so sure that you're going to be able to access. You could have an ISP that's blocking though that that traditional VPN port or the local network could be blocking it. Although in Jim's case with a with a owner that's boneheaded enough to be, you know, running open Wi Fi for his whole company and employees and temporaries, I I doubt that they're blocking anything. Yeah. So, you know, for as little as eight eighty eight a month, you could use the V hotspot VPN one version, which doesn't require that you install anything and they help you get set up and configured um, in order to be able, able to use their VPN. That solution, of course, fails my TNO, my trust no one goal, because you are trusting them. But they're a commercial outfit. You know, you, you're, you're trusting them because all of your traffic goes through them and then emerges unencrypted onto the Internet at their location. So, you know, they're, they're also someone... Where you know if you if our U.S. government wanted to be snoopy, um, they would tend to be looking at traffic at those sorts of aggregation points because you know a lot of people 
who have for some reason feel that they have something to hide um, are going to be using this kind of a service. So I like the idea of of staying a little bit further under the radar by using your own existing, for example, residential internet connection for for your own traffic. But, you know, that's not available yet. It will be as soon as I can get to it. There's one out um, that I a lot of people have been telling me about lately called Hotspot Shield. Yep, that's the free one. That, yeah, that's free. Yep. What, what do you think of that? Have you looked at that? I haven't looked at it closely. Um, it's probably a company uh, called Anchor Free. Same idea yeah. as Hotspot VPN. Hotspotshield.com. I like the idea of paying somebody because I figure they're going to have faster servers. They're going to be around. Yes, I do too. I mean, and ten eighty eight a month. I mean, that's you know ten ten dollars ninety eight cents for one whole month of use. And you and I both use Hotspot. They do have multiple locations and servers, and really good performance. Yeah, and I like SSL. I mean, that's really great. That yep. makes it a lot. That makes it so easy. Moving right along. Dixon in San Francisco wonders about YubiKey and keystroke loggers. Yeah. In episode 180 of Security Now, you discussed knowing what tools are supposed to combat what threat. I know YubiKey's function is to prevent dictionary attacks. Can you clarify whether YubiKey has any meaning against keystroke loggers? In other words, do key loggers work before uh, the full OS is booted? If I use a YubiKey to log onto Windows and boot up, would a key logger be able to see that? How about after the full OS loads? I noticed that Windows Vista and 7 no longer require Control-Alt-Delete to get to the login screen. My understanding was that little requirement was supposed to thwart keyloggers. Is that true? Thank you. Would Control-Alt-Delete thwart keyloggers? Well, actually, yes. Um, the, uh, from from the minute NT was created, and they were talking about how it had this, you know, the S3 security certification right. stuff. Um, which it never really had, by the way, because you cannot be on a network and get that certification. Right. So the the moment you put yourself on a network, oh, well, then never computer mind. <laughs> loses that the ability to have S three, you know, right. government certification for security. It's like, ah, uh, sorry, you plug this into something else, so we don't we don't trust you anymore. Um. Okay, so it is conceivable that you could have a boot virus keylogger that could co-reside with YubiKey. We know, for example, that Adobe's DRM is able to, thanks to, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, that the keylogger could co-reside with TrueCrypt. And we know that Adobe's DRM forced the TrueCrypt guys to reduce their, the size of their footprint down in track zero and create redundant copies so that if Adobe's DRM stomped on one of them, you'd still be able to access your computer. So it's conceivable that a keylogger could install itself in track zero, co-reside with TrueCrypt, and, and get control before TrueCrypt, hook the BIOS keyboard interrupt, which is how it would read keystrokes, feed those to TrueCrypt, Maybe TrueCrypt wouldn't notice that. I don't know whether TrueCrypt checks for that happening, although it's possible that it could. On the other hand, if it did, the keylogger could also you know, neuter that check in TrueCrypt before TrueCrypt gets running. So, I mean, it's theoretically possible for, for pre-boot authentication to log what you type when you're, when you're you know, logging yourself in for for um uh in a whole system decryption 
Um, you know, I mean, I could write something that would do that, which means other people could too. Um, so it's not the case that you could, that it's absolutely impossible for a keystroke logger to, to watch you do pre-boot authentication. Um, so that's a possibility. It is the case that this whole login screen was deliberately designed by Microsoft to thwart um, any sort of keystroke logging. They, that Control-Alt-Delete changes sessions, it raises security, it's, it's really supposed to like put you into a whole, it, like, like, uh, there's a whole desktop technology, it moves you to a different desktop, and you know, I don't know now, in this day and age, if that's, if that's been bypassed. I do know that Microsoft went to some length of, some lengths to make that Control-Alt-Delete and the password screen really mean something from a security standpoint. Uh, and so you do wonder if they've backed off on that, if they've, if they've, ma- if they've managed to maintain that the, the login security with the same strength as they had before, and, and I don't know one way or the other. Okay. So, you know, YubiKey and key loggers, um, this is the problem with static keys. I mean, this, is, this, is, this has come up several times in this, own, in, in this one hour, um, is that, you know, the, the YubiKey is very convenient to use in a static key mode, but it doesn't re- really represent a full another factor of authentication. And because it's the same, it is prone to being recorded. So, you know. So there. There. <laughs> <laughs> Alex B. lurking somewhere in Minnesota wants a reality check. He says, hi, Stephen Leo. I'm guessing, hoping actually, that others have already alerted you to this. But if not, here goes. Um, oh, first things first. I love the podcast. It makes my commute so much more enjoyable. On page 77 of the January issue of PC World, a writer had a small article sty- entitled, Stop your neighbors from stealing your Wi-Fi bandwidth. Quoting from the last paragraph of the article. You could just turn on your router's built-in WPA encryption, but that won't do you much good if your kids blab the family's Wi-Fi password to everyone on the block. Instead, turn on Mac address filtering in your router's security settings. You'll have to spend a few minutes entering the Mac hardware addresses for all your devices, but after that, you won't need to use any additional security at all. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, only only known... De- I, I added the oh, my God. I don't think it was in the article. Only known devices will be allowed to connect, so a password's not required. To, yeah, Alex goes on, to say that I was stunned after reading this is an understatement. Who in the tech world really thinks it's okay to disable encryption for any reason, let alone in favor of MAC address filtering? MAC address spoofing, as we Security Now listeners all know, is trivial. Not only that, but simply preventing someone from joining your network doesn't mean they can't sniff all your unencrypted packets floating around the neighborhood. What do you think? Thanks again, and keep up the good work. Wow. Yeah, um, he was actually even more upset than that. He, he named the writer, and I took the writer's name out of this because I didn't want to lambaste anyone. Um, it, it's... Well, everyone listening to this podcast knows that 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 Alex is right. That MAC address filtering is no protection against somebody who maliciously wants to get onto your network because the MAC addresses are on the unencrypted front 
of all the packets traveling on your network. So they're easily copied and spoofed. You simply, you know, clone the MAC address and then the router that's got MAC address filtering thinks it's you. We do know the MAC address filtering is, is convenient for preventing inadvertent use of the network. So, you know, it does, if you, for some reason you had to have your router open, that is not encrypted, then you could at least use MAC address filtering to prevent somebody, you know, a neighbor from mistakenly using your network because, you know, their Mac wouldn't match and your router would not acknowledge their, their broadcast for, for access. Um, I would say a couple things. First of all, um, you should not have a WPA passphrase that that is easily stated. That is, you know, we've talked about using the YubiKey, for example, as a beautiful way yeah. of quickly entering a, your WPA key into visiting computers um, rather than having to type something long and laborious in. So one solution is for the family's router to have a really nasty, gnarly passphrase, which, you know, where you've got to have a piece of paper and where it's written down and you type it in. So all you need to do is configure, you know, the younger member of the family's laptops once, not giving them the paper, but typing it in for them. That's not then something that they can give to their friends because, you know, there's no way that they're going to know it or memorize it. Um, The alternative is to use both. That is, to because there's nothing to prevent you from using MAC address filtering and WPA encryption at the same time. That has the advantage, if you wanted to use a passphrase that was memorable, it has the advantage of, of being easily entered by, you know, somebody who wants to add a machine to the network, or if a, a, a machine loses its password or becomes um, disconfigured, but you then you'd still need to log into the router and manually add the machines, the, the new machine's MAC address into the permitted list for communications. So I would say use both as opposed to either one in this situation. And it, it really is unfortunate that, you know, a, a writer in this day and age is saying, is recommending not to, you know, to turn off encryption and use MAC address filtering because obviously as as Alex points out, and as all, as all listeners to this podcast know, um, those are not the same at all. Yeah, Use WPA. It's all you need, and it works, and it's simple, and it just works. Yep. yep. Um, I'm seeing another article on PC World when the guy says, use SSID hiding. Oh. Uh, I wonder if they've got editors who know what the hell they're talking about. I mean, how is this stuff getting through? It's very frustrating to me because, of course, people read this, and then I have to explain it on the radio. Right, but they said so in PC World. Yeah, who? Uh, yeah, who's right, Leo? Yeah. Who knows? Or- PC World's a magazine. They must <laughs> know what they're talking about. Please, jeez, Louise. All right, we're gonna. Uh, <laughs> I need to cool off. <laughs> we're gonna take a break. We're gonna talk about those PayPal security issues you mentioned. Uh, Two uh, questions yes. come up. Oh, some interesting points. <clears throat> but first, I want to mention uh, something that is secure. It is it actually is another way that you could surf securely from an Internet cafe or anywhere. It's go to my PC because go to my PC uses 128 bit SSL encryption. 
So uh, I know a lot of people use it as a VPN, but it's much more. I mean, it's really remote access, secure remote access. In fact, if you want to try it out, you can do it free for 30 days. Just go, uh, go to go to mypc.com slash security now right now. Before I'm done talking, it will be installed. It takes less than a couple of minutes. I mean, it's very quick. Just a couple of clicks of the mouse. Once you've got it installed, now anywhere you go, an internet cafe, at home, um, at the airport, at hotels, anywhere, secure or not, as long as you can get a computer that you can get online with, you go to gotomypc.com, you enter your username and password, you want to use a secure password, of course, and there's your uh, office computer screen. You could do anything you could do at work. It uh, Run programs, send and receive email, access network resources, it's just like you're at work, so if you forget... You know, if you're worried you forget a slide for your PowerPoint or, you you know, you don't have to sync up your laptop. You don't have to email yourself files. It's just all there, always available. You could drag and drop files from your office PC to your desktop. But it is, it's 128-bit SSL encrypted. So it's just like a VPN. If you surf to your desktop and then surf the internet, you're secure, even in an insecure, totally insecure environment. 30 days free, try it yourself. There's lots of reasons to get this uh, from now on when you travel. You should always carry Go to My PC on your laptop. Actually, you don't have to. That's the beauty of it. Install it once in your desktop, and then anywhere you go, you can use it without any install at all. Go to MyPC.com slash security now. 30 days free. Try it today. I think you'll like it. It is If you've tried other remote access solutions, uh, you might have found them slow, difficult to install, not secure. This is this is the best. Go to mypc.com slash security now. We thank them for their support. I forgot that's another that's another perfectly good way to do VPN. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. And 30 days free. I think it was Jim was the person who was looking for the solution. It's like you if, if he's not going to be there for more than a month, he's got a free solution. Yeah, should have mentioned that. Um, they probably want a credit card. and They want identity. a credit card, I think. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think you know what we're really encouraging all of our uh, uh, sponsors now to do that to, to give you th- free trials because uh, you're smart people and we and I think that is a way of a, of an advertiser saying look we know we trust you you know this is the best way to try it uh, we believe in our product <laughs> you know we're not trying to sell you a bill of goods try it and then you decide I think that's a great way to go okay now let's go to our PayPal questions here starting with Brian in Raleigh North Carolina who has discovered that PayPal security key is worthless. When faced with social engineering, I recently lost my PayPal security key, but I needed to log on to my account. So I tried to log on to PayPal.com. I selected the I don't have a key with me. Then I selected I lost my key. Well, the website said call customer service because my identity couldn't be verified. All right. Good so far. When I called customer service, though, I discovered all I needed was the last four digits of my credit card and my name. Then they would deactivate the security key, even let me reset my password. This, of course, terrified me. With the information available at any restaurant credit card receipt, because that's what they put on there, isn't it? The four digits of your credit card. Or a little dumpster diving, plus some basic social engineering to get the logon email address, you could have a full access to anyone's PayPal account. Yikes! Yeah. This is a serious security flaw that shocks me. They should at least ask for the full credit card number, if not some security questions. Or maybe the the second group, or the second to the last group of four. I mean, it's so common for everyone to show the last four digits in order to identify which card among multiple cards. (sighs) But I mean, that's that's now public knowledge. Yeah. And the the idea of asking, you know, two public knowledge questions, the last four digits of your credit card and your name, 
I mean, and then, okay, fine. And that's, that's the entire barrier for resetting this, the security on your PayPal account. That's just nuts. Wow. I guess there's nothing we can do about it except to, to say PayPal, fix it. Oh, but wait, there's more. Oh, wait, there's more. Robert in San Francisco with another PayPal screw up. All right, get this. I had two PayPal security keys, the, like the footballs, you know, one for home, one for office, and I lost one of the two keys. Now, PayPal has a page where you can report the key is lost. After reporting, it shows as lost. The other key shows as active. Then I received an email from PayPal stating that my key had been reported as lost and it would no longer be required for login. So get this. When I went to log in again, it accepted the password alone and did not prompt me for my remaining still active key. The non-lost key still shows up in my profile as active. Now what? So it just says, okay, fine, you don't need it anymore. So you have multiple keys protecting your account, and you can use any one of them to log in. You lose one of those keys and report it as lost. Now your account, even though you still have other keys, no longer requires them. No longer gives you the option of using them. And you them. can't turn it back on? Uh, how would you? They're already shown as active, but the system just doesn't need them. No. I mean, it's like, come on. If there were only some other choice. I know. Like I said, there has never been a company that needs competition more yeah. desperately than PayPal. Well, uh, I, I'm of the opinion eBay is about to go under anyway, so maybe the whole thing will collapse and we can go, we can go somewhere else. You think so? You I and I, I totally rely on PayPal. Yeah. Well, I just think eBay is, is not doing well. Are they really not? Yeah, I think people have started to realize that it's just not a safe place to to do business. Yeah. And those lax oh, practices. Oh, you mean like, like, you know, just too many scams. Yeah, and those lax yes. practices are spreading uh, to its subsidiary. Uh, in fact, there were, there were several times in the last couple of weeks where I bought a couple things from a, a, from, from a single eBay seller, and I said, hey, you know, and, you know, eBay seems to really um, misjudge shipping costs at the high end. It's like, you know, it's like, wait a minute, this cannot cost $50 to ship this from Raleigh, North Carolina. So I'll say, I said, I wrote to one, one guy in particular, I said, hey, you know, I bought these two things. Um, could you, you know, put them together, combine the shipping and send me a request for payment that, sh- that has them combined? And apparently, you know, they used to do that, but there was some scam that purchasers were were perpetrating where they would do that and then say that, I guess, tell eBay. And we got one of the two. Yes, one of the Uh, two and like the cheaper of the two and then get a credit for the other one or something. It's like, oh, goodness. Okay, fine. So, you know, what are you going to do? I just, I, you know, I, I don't know what to say. It's got to. It's got to get better. It's got to get better. It's well, a great concept. I mean, I love the idea. I do too. And if it weren't just, for all these scammers out there, yep, yep, but they're just out there. I guess we have to live with them. Watch out! Zombies are on the way, folks. Run. <laughs> <laughs> Head for colder climate. Head for colder, warm climate. Oh, zombies! Do they not like colder climates? I don't know. I didn't think zombies were really temperature sensitive. I didn't think so either. No. That go where the brains are. Steve, it's great talking to you. Thank you so much for being here. Always, my friend. And don't forget. Go ahead. I'll remind our listeners one more time. 
Catmouse, K-A-T-M-O-U-S-E. It will change your life if you like the scroll wheel on your mouse and you're a Windows user. I'm, oh, my God. It's just wonderful. I'm putting it on all my all my Windows machines. Believe me. I mean, you'll just like, oh, it's just, it's, and not to have to click in the window first in order to get its attention. You know, it just, it's wherever the, the, the mouse is hovering, that gets scrolled. It's tremendous. Steve's at GRC.com. That's his website. You could find 16 kilobit versions of this show. You could find transcripts, show notes, all that information. We also have now very complete show notes. Thanks to our listeners uh, to the live stream on the wiki at wiki.twit.tv. When you go to GRC, don't forget to get a copy of Spinrite. Everybody should have that. Everybody needs... Yabba-dabba-doo. Yabba-dabba-doo. Spinrite, the ultimate file. I'm sorry, disk maintenance and recovery utility. And, of course, lots of great free programs there as well. GRC, Gibson Research Corporation. Thanks, Steve. Bill, talk to you next week. Security now.